Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Luke Ridden, founder, head distiller at Grandad Jack's Craft Distillery. Here we are today at the brilliant Gold Coast venue uh, in Queensland, Australia. Uh, Luke, I reached out to you because I really wanted to know more about you for two reasons. One, I love a craft drinks success story in my own city, uh, and this one really interests me. And two, because I was fascinated by your transformation journey, which is well documented on your social media channels. Uh, it's pretty damn inspiring. You set yourself some pretty big goals. Luke, you've got a lot going on. Let's get into it. Yeah, a little bit, mate. You're making me blush a touch. So, yeah, I suppose we'll start off with the first part, which is, um, you know, this craft drinks business that I'm in with my father. We started about five years ago, um, all inspired by my great-grandfather and his life story. And we were really gifted, I guess, from a family of hoarders that kept a lot of things from, you know, all the past, all those knickknacks and family photos. And we were, we were blessed to have all those sorts of things. But also um, a famous story that, his three daughters gave to him on his 90th birthday, which kind of led out these different stories of his life and different like kind of key moments. And we've followed that and created the brand from it. So yeah, it's, it's been a been a long journey and it's nice to have made it to the fifth year almost. Next month is five years and been plenty of ups and downs, but we're still here, still surviving, still doing our best. So before his 90th birthday, did you have any idea about the wealth of that origin story? Because, and, and there's so many great stories on the website about the journeys he made and the sacrifices he made and the work he did, but it also talks to some of the distilling he did as well. Did you have any idea that all that existed? No, not at all. Like, especially, I knew he was this hard man. I knew he was a very respected man in our family and he was the guy that kind of everyone turned to for advice or for, you know, any little bit of wisdom that they could get from him um, and I knew that from when I was very young we've got some photos in the distillery of me dressed up just in a miniature costume of him essentially following him around the garden and he was just a hard-ass blue-collar old bloke who was just you know a grinder and just made it happen so you didn't start life in the distilling business what what was the catalyst that took you and your father to go well we're aware of a family origin story we're doing different things in life we actually want to do something completely different now and build a business from the ground up and this is what it's going to be. It really started off with my dad. He, he'd sold a previous business. He had you know, been semi-retired essentially for six months and he was just getting bored, I think. And we've always talked about doing something in honor of my great-grandfather, everything from barbershops to museums in his hometown and you know all of those sorts of things that you kind of dream about, especially when I was much younger. And then, um, yeah, we were just sitting around having a drink and talking about granddad and I just kind of finish up my apprenticeship as a mechanic and I was looking at you know I'd, I'd go over to Europe or I'd always talked about opening a small bar or something like that and you know it was kind of all of these things came together over a, having a whiskey and it was like oh maybe we could do a distillery and the research the research started and you know a month later I was down in Tassie just figuring out okay what a what a Australian distillery is all about and what do they do? Is it hard? Is it something that I can achieve? And I figured out, you know, within a couple of days, yeah, I think it's something I can grasp. And we quickly just took the next steps and eight months, eight months later we opened. So I went from having a whiskey together, talking about granddad, going down to Tassie to just get an understanding of what it was about. And then flying to the US where we met a great bloke named Blake Heffernan, who actually came back over to Australia and, and taught me very quickly. So, you know, brought me from somebody who knew nothing and had never been in the industry to someone who could create some really high quality spirits in, you know, a matter of a few weeks. So, because an eight month journey is a massive acceleration from from nothing to a hundred. Yeah, it's we don't really do anything outside of that. It's like we pick a we pick a spot and we just go hard until we can make it all happen. And I think we're this distillery we opened on the Gold Coast was the fastest to open in Australia. And at that time there was one hundred and fifteen, and we opened Brizzy. I think almost three years later and that we opened in five months. So much even quicker than here. And, you know, obviously taking the lessons that we learned and trying to do things one step better. So when it comes to opening a venue like this, you obviously on the day you open, you need drinks to serve. Between coming up with the idea and opening the doors, what is a fantastic venue? Where were you making these drinks? What was your approach to be ready for that day one? 
Well, if anyone walked into where we were living at the time, they would have thought we were like making meth or doing something crazy because I had this small little glass still and a little hot plate and I'd got my juniper and I was buying the cheapest vodka I could from Dan Murphy's and I was just putting it in the still and redistilling it and trying to infuse it. And that was all basically from the encouragement and the advice of Blake who was in the US at the time. So we met him um, in December 2017 and we came up with a rough idea of what was going to happen and at the time when we met him, we didn't have, we didn't really even have a logo. We had, didn't have a property. We just had the idea and we knew we were going to head towards that direction. And the day we landed back from the US, we secured this building and we started demoing it and started getting everything ready. So it happened so quickly that it was like, all right, well, okay, what still do I find? And how can I do R&D? What sort of research can I do? Is it just buying a bunch of other gins? Is it um, going to a bunch of more distilleries and tasting and getting my palate up to scratch it was all those things kind of coming together and yeah it was just tasting a small still and then slowly but surely bringing it up and we didn't make the first batch of you know full gin here until a couple of weeks before we opened how do you get your palate up to scratch because you know most people will enjoy a spirit on you know any, any night of the week that they want to have it and they'll go yeah i like the taste of that but i don't like the taste of that but that's a lot different from creating something that that people are really going to like something that's unique and ultimately something that goes on to win awards. How, how can you, can anybody train the palate to do that? I think so. I think for the most part, I've looked at, to be honest, I think, you know, there's the simple way of doing it, which is you could go and find every award winning gin and you could taste them and be like, well, this is, this is where the standard of great gins are. The other way to do it is to try everything, to try different foods, to try different beers and wines and spirits and everything else and get kind of a really broad range of a palate because you get plenty of people say they do like this or they don't like that. A lot of that's to do with preference and not quality as well. So I understand where is it at from a quality point of view. You need to taste like everything. You need to taste as many different spirits, as many different foods, as many different samples that you can create yourself. And coming from a background not doing any traditional style training i didn't go to a course i didn't go to the university of adelaide and do you know a week down there i did none of that so a lot of it came from repetition and practice and figuring out what people liked and what people didn't like and what my own palate was kind of understanding okay does this have too much heads which is like the, f the first cut of the spirit mm. um is this really weighty does it have length you know have we kept a lot of oils in the spirit from distilling it the right way it's learning those things through just doing it rather than reading about it or you know, reading blogs or doing any of that. And I imagine all of your friends and family were involved in the tasting and the, the road testing of these things. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a lot of skeptical friends to start with. Before we started demo and, and clean this out, we had like a little a little party in here, a few beers to celebrate us securing the building. And I remember people looking at it and like, I do not know how you guys are gonna turn this into a place that's any good because it is an absolute an absolute hole of a place and you know we spent three days on a tile remover just peeling up acrylic from the floor from the previous surfboard manufacturer so you know it was a completely different spot and you know they were all knew me from my mechanic background i'm not a great mechanic either so i don't know they were probably like well i don't know how you're gonna make any of this work but everyone it was full of encouragement and support and one step at a time just got better and better and better and yeah don't really have much to say other than that so, so before we get onto the, the the premises and and kind of the building of the business that side of it, did you did you start with just gin or did you start on multiple spirits? We started with the vodka and three gins. Mm -hmm. So straight away we started with those. Uh, in the same week that we distilled all those, we distilled our first whiskies. We put down a peated single malt, a bourbon style, and like a standard kind of single malt. Um, so more of that Scotch style, yeah. So if you so so. Gins, gins and vodkas, you don't have to age. So you make them and they're ready straight away. Pretty much. From a whiskey perspective, what was the commitment there? When were they going to be ready? So even from a point of view, so we, you know, we buy in our neutral spirit to, to distill our vodka and our gins with, which means we get a high quality neutral from a place called Tarek. It's made from grapes in South Australia. We buy that up and then we redistill it to infuse into, into our white spirits, the vodka and the three gins. And the turnaround for that can be, you know, an ideal timeline is two weeks basically leaving the tank let it bond but if you needed a bottle of spirit the next day you could you could dilute it you could get it to 40 percent you could send it out with whiskey if you want to make it today you're waiting two weeks before you can even distill it 
just to let fermentation happen, let that alcohol be created through the grain and through the brewing process. And once you've put it through the still and you've made your cuts, you still need a barrel and then it needs to sit in the barrel for at least two years. So, you know, it's a big commitment and it's one of those things that you can't taste and be 100% sure that you're going to have a quality product afterwards either. So there's plenty plenty have gone wrong in, in the R&D of our business in making whiskey and, and plenty has still gone great and we've released some really interesting stuff. What gives you an indication, if anything, as to whether it might be okay in two years' time? Uh, whether I cross my fingers or not. No. <laughs> um, a lot of it's to do with just how good the brewers at the start and then the quality of barrels that we can get as well. I think the brewing and the distilling part of it's maybe 40%. And I think the maturation, where it ages, how long it ages for is probably the remaining 60% of that. So we're sat in what you called the barrel room right now with a mixture of small and big barrels. Mm -hmm. Is this where all of the magic is happening? Yeah, so we've got another barrel room up in Brisbane and there's some up there as well. But yeah, this is where the magic happens for our small format barrels. So this is 20s up the top, 50s and 100s. None of you guys can see it listening, but um, these are very small format barrels. If you went to places like Scotland or Kentucky, you'd see barrels that were 225 litres all up to things that were 10,000 litres. Mm. So very small in here. And the way we do whiskey and all our barrel-aged spirits is they they come from a single barrel. So it's very much a crafts release. It's us tasting the barrel. It's us creating one full distillate and putting it all in a 50 or 100 liter, 20 liter cask and letting it do its thing and letting kind of the art of it all happen without blending barrels together and without um, kind of adding any extra flavorings at the end. We're really trying to just pull the character from the distillate and from the time in the barrel. And where do you get your barrels from? Um, in this room, it's kind of a range. We've got some ex-whiskey um, barrels from other distilleries in Australia and, and around the world. We've got some virgin American oak barrels. So they're really fresh timber, the same that they would use in Kentucky for bourbons. We've got some ex-wine casks in here. We've even got barrels that have previously aged cocktails for us that we've then re-aged other spirits in. So it's a kind of, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a varied array. We've got some Oloroso sherry casks, some Pinot casks as well. Out of all the barrels that we're sat in amongst now, if you can tell me this, which is your most avant-garde creation? There's a couple behind you. We've got a footstomp brandy. And that was a very ambitious task where we, um, which is falls up in Tambourine Mountain there. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they press grapes up there. They make great wine and they had some skins. And we were just looking at different projects we could do. And they had, it was just happened to be vintage and I'd head up there. And they were pressing out a lot of these grape skins. Um, but the way they do it is not to push out 100% of the juice and get all of the sugar. It's to get just the right amount, not to push too much tannin or, you know, get too many other flavors. So there's still quite a lot of sugar left in them. So I got two basically big cubes of these mostly pressed grape skins and then rinsed them to get a lot of the sugar out and then started stomping them with my feet and let, the, let this juice that flowed off it um, ferment openly in our distillery and then redistilled that as its own spirit as well. So that's probably the most out there one. We've, you know, we've got, we're playing around all the time. We've got some beer whiskeys behind me uh, made from red ales and pale ales and lagers. So yeah, we're always trying new things, especially in the, in the 20 liters. There's one here that's caught my eye that's given a particular stir in, in the base of my stomach is, yeah. is a rum in X Negroni barrels, which is currently looking at something like 65% ABV. Yeah. So that's going to be pretty special. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting. I think the, it's a panella rum, so it's essentially um, unrefined cane sugar, just fermented and distilled the same way we would do molasses. It's more like a cachaça or mm -hmm. um, kind of a South American style of spirit. And yeah, I think that that kind of grassy note matched with the sweetness is going to go really well with all the bitter notes out of the Negroni and that orange character and things like that. So I'm very excited for that. That's been in about almost a year now, so or just over a year actually. So it's probably time for a tasting. Maybe we'll do that before you leave. Yeah, maybe. So so a lot's happened in five years. Um, if, and if we wind back five years and we think about you doing the demo on this building and you're starting to build it, the Gold Coast and Miami is, is a bit of a different place. Black Hops is there around the corner. They're doing well, but they're in the early years. Precinct's not there. Um, Bind down the road's doing well from a craft beer perspective. Uh, there's, there's a few distilleries round and about perhaps brisbane northern rivers but there's no way the volume of people then than there are now did you have any idea how big the industry was going to become i think we knew we would help build it i think we knew that we'd be if 
you know, we lived in this area for starters. And I think part of the reason we wanted to be here is it was one of the only industrial spots in the coast left this close to the beach with these kind of, you know, semi-industrial areas that were still close to homes and residences. And it was where we lived and we wanted to be a part of the community. So even if there was better places in, you know, Broadie or wherever else, it wasn't somewhere we would see all of our customers or everyone that we partnered with throughout the week and throughout the day. And here we have that luxury. We get to meet everyone and we get to see them out in the community. And that was a really special part of why we started this as well. This is a golden part of the Gold Coast. If I was going to choose a special night out and I wanted it to be distillery and taproom focused, Miami is 100% where I would be doing it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty special. Like now we've got Black Ops where I actually worked while we were building this distillery. I was in the taproom there. It was like probably one of their, I don't know, maybe first 10, 10 staff that were through the taproom. And that was a pretty special place to work while we're opening here and that was a good part of being in the community and since then we've had hard fizz open we've had a couple of cafes that have been really successful and we've got paddock which is like an iconic cafe for around the coast and we've had precinct open with you know they're, they're great operators as well uh, the imlac group and scotty there um he was actually he's probably the one of the original people who ever hired me when i was 12 years old or or so i was a dishy in the back of scotty's venues in barcino and nobby so yeah it's a, it's a tight-knit community and there's plenty always happening around here yeah, it does seem like the community always helps people out. And um, I guess at some point between opening and where we are today, we, we faced the whole pandemic. What did that do to your business? We thought we were just done. Hey? We thought it, like, well, we can't open our venues. You know, we'd, we'd just been pushing and pushing and pushing. And and we, we saw every week we were slowly growing and slowly growing. And we thought, oh, well, you know, if we can't make money through our venues, we don't have a wholesale side of the business outside of export. So, you know, we didn't have venues. We didn't have other places to, we didn't have Dan Murphy's in BWS that we sell through. So it was like, well, how are people going to buy us? At the time, we couldn't even, as a licensed producer, we couldn't sell online in Queensland. Um, that's been a process that we've had to be involved with to change those laws um, during COVID. So on the other side of it, it's been a big big success it's probably maybe one of the the best things that's happened you know but during it you'd think oh we're not going to survive this this is just when, when do we shut up how do we get any money back out of this place so we can continue to um, survive and then we sat down and we talked about it as a team and the idea of sanitizer came up and and it was something that lasted two months but it meant we could keep all our staff on it meant we could keep all the lights on it meant we could keep investing all that money into holding all of our good team here keeping the business operating until the doors could open back to normal. And ever since then, it's been strength to strength. And I think we'll feel it again in the coming maybe 12 to 18 months as people kind of readjust and we're back out of that kind of COVID time, even though it's, you know, two, three years on, it's still it's still, it's still got some financial effects on most people, I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I said at the beginning there was a couple of things I was interested in the business and we'll keep talking about that development as we go through, but also you and your transformation and the fact that you document who you want to be as a human quite openly. So when you started this five years ago, you'd come out of your apprenticeship, obviously a hard worker, you're learning everything you can about distilling. Who were you as a person and, and you know, how did you feel about who you were? Um, I think I was like maybe I projected a lot of confidence, but most of it due to just that's the only way I knew how to even approach being the kind of person that I wanted to be. I could see that outwardly confident individuals kind of got what they want a little bit better or um, gain people respect quickly at least. And it was just about following that up. I think I was a very different person. There was a lot of immaturity, but, you know, between the time that we were planning to open this and we started the demolition when we opened it, you know, I'd had my 21st birthday. I'd, um, you know, we'd, we just found out that we we're having our first son so, you know, all these things happen that big life-changing events all happen in this one year, essentially. And I think that was a big jump up. And then as you start to manage people and staff, you you start to get more and more mature. But I was very much someone who knew I could work hard, that knew my value wasn't just grinding out and getting things done. And I'd been like that forever. I, you know, since I worked for my old man when I was a kid, just sweeping up the floors to when I worked for anybody else, I just knew I just had to keep pushing. And then it Maybe other people were smarter and faster, but I could hold out and I could just keep going and going and going. And you talked off camera about starting a family while you're starting a business. And, and, and when you do that, you're beyond busy. So mentally, you might neglect yourself. Physically, 
you might neglect yourself. What was happening to you at that point in time? So we, when we went into starting this business, I, you know, I've gone through like ups and downs in my kind of weight and my fitness before. And we'd just come out of this period of time where I was really dialed into myself. I was probably the fittest I'd been up until right now. And, you know, I was, I was probably hovering around the 105-ish kg mark. And I was pretty fit doing this whole build. And then when we started to go through in that extra stress and that extra time pressure, and you kind of let that fall to the wayside and you're eating whatever you can find in the, in the two seconds of extra time yeah. you've got. And then you add the sleepless nights of having a new baby and all those other things just on top of it. And my, my weight just like ballooned out. I think I probably peaked out around 130 kgs or so. And yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's one of those impacts that you, if you're not focused on it, if you don't have a routine that creates some discipline or this kind of, this cycle of motivation and consistency, you don't have anything. You just, it all falls away. You know, like if you don't practice anything, as soon as everything falls bad and it's all turned to shit, you just fold up and you, you know, you go, you pack your stuff and go home. You default to the easiest possible thing. And I think, and now on the other side of that, I think I'm finally in a place where my default is the better options. It's, oh, well, I'll still get up. I'll still fit in a workout. I'll still make something else happen. I'll still do those things. Where before I think you, oh, you, you make yourself because you're so tired, you're so beaten up. You just keep making excuses for yourself, valid excuses. Oh, I didn't get much sleep. Oh, I just need to sleep in. Oh, my body needs to rest. You do all those things that it just doesn't help you. And it's really easy for that to happen because you're prioritizing what you need to do today. So you need your business to succeed. So you need, you need to you know get the doors open and then you need to get the customers in and you need to succeed because you need to provide a living for your family. And that is the 100% top priority. But at some point, if you neglect delivering for tomorrow, that's when you run into problems. What was the catalyst that, that made you say, I'm actually going to set myself some fairly big physical goals and, and work towards them? I think I've just always seen these big up and down spikes because I know what kind of a grinder I am in the discipline. And I know, you know, I can, I can hold anything out for 12 weeks. No worries. I can do be super disciplined with the food and the training. And I think it started actually much slower than that. It started with, you know, probably, probably for two years, I've been going to the gym at, you know, three o'clock in the morning, but I've only lost all the weight in the last six months. So I think it started with just like, okay, let's pick one thing that I can stay committed to. And I've always found that that time in the morning and me getting up has like fit me as a person. It's like, fits my personality it fits me um in terms of like i like being at the gym when it's quieter and i don't have to worry about it. i don't get that extra weird thing about oh i've got to wait for other people to get off the equipment and you know you kind of want your your own stations and whatnot so it started off with just let's let's just get to the gym as a as a consistent thing and then it became like a little bit more a little bit more and the weight wasn't changing and when we found out we were pregnant with our second boy it was like, okay, well, I know what happened the first time. I just ballooned up and I, I lost the, that discipline and I lost that that routine. It's like, how can I stop that from ever happening again? It was just to bury myself and like these are going to be the goals for the year and I have to stay committed to them and having that conversation with my partner and really planning it out because I, I wanted to come out the other side of this and I'm still just very much in the process now, but I wanted to come out the other side as a different person as a person that wasn't going to fall back in that way. Like this is the new version of me as a human being. And I didn't want to go back to being like, oh, well now I've hit these goals and I'm finished. So I'll just, you know, lump back into eating like shit and not training. <laughs> you do seem to have a real self-awareness. When I was watching one of your YouTube videos, uh, and I think it was about your marathon, and we'll get onto that and some of the goals that you set yourself and achieved in a minute. You talked about there being a better version of yourself in another room. Yeah, I got that. Honestly, I was listening to another podcast and I can't remember who said it, but they, it was, it was a quote and they were, they were talking about, you know, you always, you kind of hit these moments and you think they're going to be hard. And there's always, when you, when you have some self-confidence or you think you're something that you've never really shown, it's like, there's this other, there's this, the best version of yourself is in another room, like, you know, clearing their throat being like, Hey, I'm here when you need me. And you never really hit the point where you need to push that out and I think a lot of fighters talk about it and you hit that point where it's it's like it's life or death and you're really pushing for it and that that version of you comes out at the worst possible moment or at the time when you're needed most and your body is depleted and you have to push through and I think that's what the that's what the marathon did for me I think is like I could get to that 30k that 32k that 35k and just be like like you just want to stop you almost emotional you're almost tearing up because you're like you know I'm, I'm dying here I don't why did I do this this sucks and then getting into that mental zone and being able to talk yourself out of that and through that, like, no, 
shut up, bitch, get fucking running, you know, one step in front of the other, one step in front of the other, and you just keep pushing through. And that's been the goal the whole time. And I've been doing this part of the, the, the you know, this fitness journey and this weight loss journey and what else. It's just been to try and recreate different parts of myself and, you know, leave the old stuff behind. So you've set yourself a lot of goals over the past six, 12 months. Let's talk about, about, that, about that journey from the first goals that you set and achieved and then the next and then the next. And it sounds like they weren't always massively planned out in advance. There was a few late night decisions to do things. So let's talk about those. Yeah, I think they, they started pretty simple. Like one was, uh, you know, it was earn a bit more money. It was read 12 books in this year. And that's something that I find it like extremely difficult to read. I've always been bad. I default to audiobooks and podcasts. And I've always felt like part of that was a bit of, um, you know, it's it's like the mes- mental masturbation kind of pe- that people always talk about. It's like, yeah, you feel good. You can get some information. And I probably did that for years listening to podcasts and, and audiobooks. And I, I don't think there were not valuable but i think there's a certain discipline in reading and making sure you you commit to okay you know i, I did it as a simple i'll do 10 pages a day and just committing to that is a helpful routine for me and it was getting into the muscle of like or getting into the understanding of when i set a goal how can i complete stuff and reading a book in a certain amount of pages is pretty simple so if that if i can put the same thing onto how i work out or how i eat or how i set a certain business goal it's like you pick a simple target and you just focus on just getting this one thing done and then you can add to it and then you know since i've been doing 10 pages and it's like okay now i'll i'll take photos of the pages that i want and then i'll review those at the end of the week and then i'll take some i'll like write some other notes and it kind of evolves into how do i get the most out of this experience so it started with simple stuff like that just reading 10 pages it the biggest one was to be under 100 kgs which is the first time that i've been under 100 since i was 16 and to, to hold that off for six months so that's a huge one for me i've never held weight off that long um, I never, yeah, I have been under 100 kgs since I was a teenager. So that was a huge one. And part of that was fitting goals like, you know, competing in a sprint triathlon, the one on the Gold Coast, um, which I thought was a, quite a big goal. And at the time it was being such a heavy guy. Um, I had some other ones like compete in the Shipbox Rally, which I'm doing in October. Um, we were talking about the Shipbox out the front before. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of things like that. And they've kind of evolved as I've, as I've gone on and, as I've you know gone under the hundred kgs, it's like perfect. Okay, well I've hit that target now, and to stay under it for six months, like what is realistic about another body scan? And I think, okay, well, do I need to be, do I need to be you know a bodybuilder? Do I need to step on stage? No, but do I have still a decent percentage of body fat that I can lose? Yes. So we you know, I recalibrate that goal and make it still achievable, make it more realistic of what my body probably needs. Um, I I did the I did the first um, sprint triathlon. I actually did one about a couple of weeks earlier than I was supposed to. So I did the Gold Coast, but I did the Kingscliff one a week earlier. And then that evolved to, you know what, I've done those two. How do I keep the momentum up and the the desire to push really hard? Because at the moment, like when you're training for a triathlon, you're training for these extra events. It's not just like you go to the gym in the morning and I'm, I get there about three and I leave at half past five. It's not just that I'm just doing weight training. I'm just doing some cardio and I'm heading home. It's okay. Well, I'm training for these these swimming, bike and run events. I'm a terrible runner. My knees are bad. So how do I start that off? Okay, well, I definitely need to run some more. I'm a terrible swimmer, so I need to swim some more. So you easily get into your training twice a day, seven days a week. Um, and how do you, how do I keep that interesting if I don't have another goal like doing another triathlon or doing another run or something in front of me? And I found it the most consistent way to keep up losing weight. And I do I think it's sustainable forever? No, but I'm like, well, I'm this fit now. Let's see what I can do. You know, I'm 26. I'm fittest I've ever been. I want to push my body a bit and I want to see what I'm capable of doing. And that's kind of how it's evolved from doing a sprint triathlon, which is a 750-meter swim, a 20K bike and a 5K run up to doing an Olympic distance, which is double all of that. So 1,500-meter swim, 40K bike, 10K run, um, and the weekend after that, I saw the GC30, which is a 30K run come up. And I thought, I'll just quietly enter this and I'll just go do it. It wasn't a big thing. It wasn't on my goal list, but I was like, okay, I feel pretty good. I feel like I recovered. I didn't really, but I felt like, you know, I felt like I could push it out. And I went and did that. And that was rough. Like that's one of the roughest things I've ever done. That's a remarkably difficult race. And for anyone that's never run it, it's a 30K road race, but half of it 
perhaps even more than half, is not on the road. Yeah, it's like a weird good sandy gravel patch and then onto a footpath and then it's awkward and it's laps too, which is like, I think that sucks worse. Like mm. doing the laps, you pass the same point. You're like, oh God, I'm only I'm 21Ks in now. It's the How many laps? I think it was two, maybe two yeah. or three. Yeah, I think it's two. I think it's two 15K laps, but um yeah that that was that sucked it's the worst and i hate running so much and i was like this i don't want to do this but the most annoying thing is when i when i finished it and i got my medal and i got my time my watch only said it was like 26.8 k's and i was like what has happened here i followed the course i've done my laps i was like this sucks i've like done a fake 30k mm. which led me on to then like maybe i should just do the marathon and um we'll get to that later but the week you know i'd done my 30k and i was like okay we'll keep some momentum up and then in my social media feed, I actually got uh, a recommendation of the Cooley Classic, which is a big ocean swim. I think it's from Snapper to Kira or the other way around. And uh, it's a 3K ocean swim. So I signed up for that on the Monday after the 30K run. And on the, the following weekend, I smashed out the 3K ocean swim. And um, yeah, I, th I, th I just felt great being able to back it up one on top of the other and, and just keep pushing myself. And then I sat down and was like, okay, well, is it realistic for me to keep trying to do these things, you know, for at least a six months to keep a lot of this weight off or and then look at other kind of goals that are fitness orientated um, or is it not and when I sat down I thought you know what I can do maybe I should go and try and do something like a half Ironman and I you know set the, set the task out for that now and that's double the distance I did in the previous try and it's much longer so you know I'm looking at doing probably a try a month from September through to June or July and and mixing in some other things in between that so yeah, it's, it's evolved very quickly, um, but the main goals were really, definitely around fitness and getting that part of my life sorted. How do you manage your time? Terribly. Um, just wake up early. I don't sleep much. Um, I try and communicate the best I can. And like the sleep thing, which is super important, is the thing that I, that right now I can let go to a certain point. I think in five years and 10 years, I don't, I'm not going to have that same ability. But right now I'm pretty consistent on about six hours sleep. I can get enough in. Luckily I have a very supportive partner who's incredible and, and puts up with our little child who's hungry 24 seven and is up all hours of the night. Um, if I didn't have her, I'd, I'd, I'd be in all worlds of pain and struggle, but luckily I do. But yeah, it's just, you fit it in, right? Like you start, you thinking about what, what in my day can be taken away. Like I like watching Netflix and hanging out and listening to, you know, nonsense like anyone else, but I just fit that in when I'm on the stair climber at the gym for 40 minutes or half an hour. I do it when I'm stretching, I do it in the sauna. Um, and then outside of that, I don't do it. So it's fitting in the stuff that is unproductive with the things that are some somewhat productive. And outside of that, it's just squeezing every little bit out of the day that I can, you know, I'm at the gym from three to 5.30, I'm home, get the boys ready, um, head to work, I either drop my, my oldest son off, um, come to work, you know, just after eight or I'm here about seven o'clock, 7.30 and I get stuck in. I, I try and break up my day a little bit, do some version of time blocking, I guess, where I'll start on task and I'll, you know, I'll see how far I can take it until I start to fade off or get distracted and I'll set a timer. I'll start reading my book. I'll get through a couple of pages and I'll split up again. And I have just, you know, it's like all the other goals that I have. It's something that is never ending and something that I'm always trying to improve upon and get a little bit more out of each day but it's by no means easy you know i'm sure some things are still falling apart and you know we don't get all the time with don't get all the time with my partner that she probably deserves or that she probably wants um i probably don't get enough time with each individual person that's in here i probably don't get enough time with my sons but i think there's points in your life where you have to choose and you you don't get to have 100 percent of everything at all at once i just try and make when i'm doing one thing i'm doing i'm trying to make the most of it um yeah, like I'm trying to manage it like anyone else, I think. All that notwithstanding, does your partner and do your team here find you to be a different person now than you were 12 months ago? To be honest, I haven't asked him. I I would assume so. I think my partner definitely does. Um, she gets all the benefits, but um, I, yeah, honestly, I don't know. I don't know what my team thinks here. I think there's impacts that you have from setting an example from, I think me posting about it a little bit, it has an effect. Do I think people a little bit more active or are searching for different goals like that in and amongst our business because I'm doing it. I think to say that it has no effect would be silly but to say that it's the only thing that drives other people would be also be silly. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's somewhat the leadership always sets the tone and 
if I've had a positive effect on anyone, if they've read more books this year, if they've done more things and I've been any part of the motivation to do so, um, yeah, that'd make me super proud, but I don't know if I actually am. And you mentioned on, I think some of the, some of your social posts, your development, so physical development, you know, your, your mental development and reading those 10 pages a day from a book, that seems like a fantastic way to get through books because a lot of people would struggle to do that. And then you also talked about leadership and that's something that really interests me. I spend a lot of time in, in that area, thinking about it, doing it. And you've built a business from the ground up. So, so on day one, you were leading yourself and now it's a whole different ball game. So how big's the team look now and how have you managed to reflect on how you're leading that team and developing as you've gone? Well, yeah, so it started with myself, my father, and we hired three bartenders. Um, first one quit even before, or one of them quit even before our first ever shift. So there was myself, two bartenders, and my old man. Um, and then since then, I think there's 19 of us between here, Brizzy, and Newcastle. Um, you know, we've got people in all sorts from the tasting room to the warehouse to marketing and design. And, you know, I've had, I have the benefit of a lot of that being family that in amongst that is, you know, me, mum, Jess, my partner and dad. Um, we've got our first ever employee, Mika. She's been here since the start. So, and, and that's a huge benefit for people who haven't been able to hold on or have never had extremely high quality staff or extremely loyal staff that is like invaluable to have those people around because it, it makes managing the situation a lot better. It's also, I think for me, you, for me, I learned from like fucking stuff up, you know, I've had, I've been a terrible manager. I've been a micromanager since we've had this business. I've probably been pedantic. I've been all over the shop and you know, it's a, it's a two, two steps forward, one step back and you're just figuring it out as you're going along. I think a lot of that's been help from my family. A lot of it's been just really thinking through the process thinking about how what how and why i'm thinking about things and what kind of impact i have and a, a big part of that a big part of the change in the business was i was in the tasting room 24 7 essentially when we first opened and i noticed as I, it got on and i had other priorities that it was something that was being it was i was less effective at i was like not in exact in the perfect zone to give exceptional customer service which is what the business needs but also what i enjoy doing but if I'm not there, then someone else needs to do that. And, you know, we've had the benefit of getting feedback from people like Mika who have been around, who are loyal and extremely um, respectful. And having feedback from people like that is, you know, invaluable. Um, as well as Zach, who looks after our two venues and all the team underneath him. And, you know, I think having those people who are also on the same mission or also want the best for the business and the best for the people is is a big part of just learning as we go. Um, I think just getting information as much as we can, having these conversations, talking to other people that own businesses, sitting down and having time to think about scenarios that are going on because people are the biggest assets and they're always the biggest thing that is going to cause problems in your business too. It's always, you know, oh, this person hasn't done this and in between that is all the interpersonal squabbles and, you know, all the rest of it. So it's always going to be a point of contention, a point that's hard. But I think it's it's probably the most valuable thing that I can provide is trying to be a great leader for my team, trying to be a great leader within my family and, and all those parts as well. Micromanagement is something that really interests me because we've all had it done to us and we've all done it. And when you start a business from scratch and there's a very small number of you there, you have to have ultimate control because the ramifications of the business going wrong are huge. You know, it's your livelihood, it's your it's your uh, financial health. But there's a point where the bill, where the business gets a bit bigger and you now need to enable your team to do more and you need to start to set, to set them up to grow the business themselves so that the business gets bigger and bigger and, and it goes on. H how do you manage to get yourself out of that micromanagement position to enabling your team more? Literally, like, I tried at first just being out of the tasting room, but I noticed or I got told very bluntly at a Christmas party by Mika, our great staff member that, Hey, like you don't let us do, you know, like you're always like in our business. You never let us just do the things that we're good at. And I think that was a big part of it. It was like, okay, yeah, you're right. I have stepped away, but I haven't really stepped away. I'm still like all in everyone's shit and they're very good at their jobs. I should just let them be. And I think it just slowly grew from that and that going on. Okay. Other people do give a shit. I think that's where it starts. I think the good intention of business owners when they start out is like, well, no one's going to care as much as like I care or no one does the job that I 
do because I want to do this little thing perfectly and I care about this little bit. And sometimes it's true, but you never find out if you don't give other people the opportunity as well. And it's part of the process. I think if I didn't have someone who told me, it would have just taken me longer to figure it out. And I'm like, why aren't people productive? Why does no one cares? Because you don't give them any responsibility. They don't have anything that's theirs. And yeah, I think I've just been very lucky with the people that I'm surrounded by. You can't beat Christmas party feedback. Yeah, that's it. It's very good. <laughs> what's, what's your vision for where you're going to take Grandad Jacks? Look, things change all the time. Um, you know, when we first, the first week we opened this business, we thought we'd do a lot of wholesale potentially. We thought we'd be in all bars and restaurants and things like that. And we, we put that in the bin, you know, a few weeks in and we thought, no, that doesn't work for our brand. And we started down this road of starting to export to a few different countries and, you know, opening our third venue now in Newcastle, hopefully next few weeks, really sets us apart from other distilleries or brands like ourselves. I think we've really focused in on this experience-based branding exercise of having a tasting room that only serves what we make and being able to indoctrinate people into the brand a little bit. Um, part of my love of that comes from my love of the brand and the love of my grandfather and the, the difference I notice in people and the difference I've had in myself when you go to somewhere or you go to an event and you interact with the brand in a way that is like almost life-changing. It's something that you don't forget. It's something that is warm and welcoming and to have this venue where we always had people walk in and they're, all, they're kind of in awe of, of the place and how beautiful it is. And then they have this homely experience with our fantastic staff here. Things, how can we keep recreating that? Because that's what actually creates this legacy of a business that can last out me as a leader and other people as a leader because it is just so inherently in the whole brand is this kind of ethos of family, this ethos of hospitality, this great experience that you can have here. And I think that's what we would like to keep expanding on. So to have more tasting rooms, to have these places where people can experience the brand on a on a full level, not just from a bottle on a shelf or from a drink in a bar. It's how can you get the story? How can you drink a great spirit? How can you find a new friend and the staff that we have here? How can you how can you get that feeling of being at home in a place that you just want to enjoy yourself? So great vision and really clear in your mind exactly what you want Grandad Jacks to be. How do you enable your team of 19 to fully understand, buy into, and, and act in a way that's going to deliver that vision? It's a good question. I think um, part of it is we try and indoctrinate this, this family kind of culture. And there's some pluses and minuses to having a small family business with a family culture. Like we, we're very much of that. We call everyone family here. We treat them like family. And some of that is putting up with people's, you know, you put up with the good and bad with family. And we do that with, within our own small family inside the Grand Jacks brand. And, you know, it means that you don't sack people when they have these issues that you wouldn't sack family over. And it means that you work through problems with people and you talk through things. It also means that we have family barbecues where we get everyone together and we have a lot of conversations and we talk openly about things. And it means that we're open about what we're doing, the brand. We, we try and talk to our staff a lot and understand where they're coming from and get ideas from them and let them have a bit of breathing room. I think a lot of it's just talking about the story and what we care about and just trying to push that on forward. And for the staff that have been with us for a long time, I think they do a good job of that as well. I think we're very much still working on, on how to do it effectively so that it's fast. Cause at the moment it is a process of we need people to be with us for six, eight, 12 months. Mm. So they're really brought in and they understand it. We haven't got to the point where I can stand up and do a speech and, and everyone's like brought in. I think it, it's a thing that's over a long period of time. And I think we just do it through building trust and building understanding with people more so than we do it from being extremely charismatic or anything like that. So you're just building that DNA through all of the people that in and amongst it all yeah. the time. All right, let's get back to um, Luke 2.0 and some of the remaining challenges. And I'm parked behind the ship box outside. And tell me about what the ship box rally is. So the ship box rally is a charity rally um, run by ship box and by the cancer council. And it's the one I'm doing is in spring and it's a drive from Port Douglas to Adelaide. So I think it's 60 or 70% gravel roads or unsealed roads. And you're basically going with a convoy of these cars that are under $1,500 in value. So we've got a 2001 Honda Accord and um, it's a beast. The thing is, I would say definitely been in a flood in Lismore because that's where I picked it up from. And it looks like it's got a flood line on the back window, but don't worry about that. And yeah, I'm doing it with my best mate for... 
our whole lives basically since we we're five years old, Mr. Alex Bark. And it's the thing, you know, it's these kind of experiences that you look at. I think there's too many things that I look at like, oh, that'd be so cool to do. And then you just never do them. And then mm-hmm. they just sit in the background and you see other people doing them and you see the experiences pop up and you're like, oh, like later on. And, you know, it's a, it's a thing that gives me the ability to manage a process that's hard, right? I have to raise the money. I have to put together a bunch of small little things in the background to make it happen. I have to find the car. I have to organize with my best friend. How are we going to, you know, do the fundraising for the Shipbox Rally? We made a gin just for it so we could raise some money. We're gathering auction items together so we can do a little charity auction for it. So there's all, all the back end of just doing this crazy kind of adventure, a 10-day drive, which sounds as mind-numbing as the 42K marathon. So, you know, it's it's finding these things that are going to be hard and difficult and and trying to just have a bit of fun with them. How many Ks is that over 10 days? I think it's got to be like maybe close to 4,000, I think. It's a long way. Will she make it? Your car has a name, doesn't it? Yeah, La Fonda. Lucky La Fonda. <clears throat> uh, I think we'll make it. I think we'll make it. I think it's got 302,000 Ks in it. I think it needs a timing chain at 300, which we definitely haven't done on it. So we'll see. I think I think La Fonda's got it in it. I think she can do it. You'll have to be gentle with her. Yeah. I almost think you definitely shouldn't do the timing chain. Yeah, you don't. You don't no. want to mess with stuff. Like no. it's, it's got oil leaks. I'm like, I probably just shouldn't touch any of it. It's driving fine. I think I think we'll just keep topping her up with the oil and she'll be fine. So you did your apprenticeship as a as a mechanic. Would you class yourself as an old school mechanic or a modern one? And what I mean by that is quite often I get frustrated if I take cars into into the shop today and they plug in the scanner and they go, everything's fine and it, and it's not. And and you know, everyone will look at it and go, We can't find an error. And then there's yeah. an old school mechanic that will go and he'll listen down a stick or he'll bash it with a hammer and he'll go, Yeah, there's a crease in that air pipe or whatever it is. Yeah. Where do you fit? To be honest, I'm a terrible mechanic. I, in my three-year apprenticeship, I reckon I worked on cars maybe 12 months of that. I did a little bit in race cars. I did more out in the front office, talking to customers and dealing with it that way. I did PD like for BMW and and a few other brands with them. Yeah, I'm a terrible mechanic. I'll, I'm mechanically minded. So, you know, I, I fixed the botting machine this morning. I do bits and pieces like that. But when it comes to fixing a car, if it's not like a simple thing, I just call someone who knows and, and really cares. I like have no ambition to sit around a car and listen to a noise through a stick and like I don't have the gift like that. But luckily I have very good friends that are exceptionally talented at those sorts of things and they're all old school mechanics. Let's hope you don't get too many problems on that shitbox rally then. Yeah, yeah. I just, I'll just stop saying that I'm a mechanic really. It's probably what I should do. I've been doing this longer now than I've ever been a mechanic. Yeah. So. You're a distiller. I'm a, a distiller. distiller and a business founder, an entrepreneur. That's yeah, that's it. Any more physical goals between now and the end of the year? Uh, I'm going to do the uh, the True Grit, I think, or in August, so a couple of weeks' time. And then, yeah, marath- uh, not a marathon, a triathlon a month up until doing the half Ironman, I think, in Cairns next June or July. So, The one thing we didn't talk about through all the fitness, the exercise, the weight training, the cardio, was, was nutrition. And I raise it because I think nutrition is my Achilles heel. Do you track that quite closely? Uh, fairly closely. I think I just came up with like a rough idea. Simple works best for me. So like I eat chicken and rice and steak and rice and then I supplement with uh, fish oil, vitamin D, magnesium, bit of zinc. Um, I don't take pre-workouts. I take um, some creatine. I generally don't take protein shakes unless it's like I need one and there's a rough meal replacement and a servo here and there. Um, but generally it's just simple, simple stuff. Um, yeah, just the basic, you need enough protein for your body weight. You need, you know, enough carbohydrates and then work it out like that. I've, I've never been crazy strict with it outside of just like, I don't need too many calories. And I track, I track a few things that, you know, having, I have a spreadsheet and I just track a bunch of things every day. I track my weight every day. I track kind of how many subscribers I got on YouTube. Cause I'd like to get some more up there. That, that is one thing that I've been terrible with. It's posting enough, but you know, I track that. I track how many calories in and out I have every day. Um, I tra- track my workouts every day, my runs and my swims. Um, so yeah, I, I have a general understanding of it. And it, I think as long as it's something that I'm tracking and I'm aware of, I'm like, okay, how many calories that I consume? And I look back through the day, like, did I have an extra snack here? Or did I get taken to lunch and oh, I had more food than I was going to eat? Okay, I had a little bit more. I think if I'm aware, and then you see the scale change as well on the same day, like, okay, you know, you keep yourself in check a bit. So YouTube and social media, it's really scary to create something out in the open, in real time, on social media. It's really easy to be judged. Uh, you know, you kind of question, well, why am I doing it? Who, who's going to watch it? Where's the benefit going to be? 
Why have you chosen to be so transparent with what, with what you're doing? Um, I think part of it is for me to look back at. Part of it might be interesting for people that are in my circle. I think as we grow the business, it's harder to stretch yourself in between. And I think more and more, especially as I started doing the 3AM, I noticed how many people see that specifically, but also, okay, might catch some of the things that I'm doing. And I think it does rub off across the board. So if I can have a, a positive impact on the people that I'm surrounding myself with, that'd be ideal. And I think it's part of the reason I want to be so, you know, so open with how I'm going about things. But also I don't know a way to do it where I'm not doing that because it's being super honest almost feels inauthentic when you're doing it by yourself to a camera. So it's like, how do I, how do I keep it really authentic? Well, I can just tell them about what I'm doing. Um, so I've kept it really basic, you know, and I'm, that's the thing I'm struggling with, I think, is because when every time I sit down in front of the camera and you go to film something, you're like, am I, what am I, what words am I saying? What am I doing? That's like, just, what am I doing just for the video? And what am I doing? Because it's like purposeful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's growth in itself, reflecting on that and being clear about what your intentions are for you and what your intentions are for everyone that's around you. Yeah. Let's talk about the business again. And you talked about what you're opening in Newcastle. Tell me a bit more about that because that's, that's an even bigger experience. So, and so why did you choose Newcastle, which is, you know, a significant distance away from your other two venues. So there's a, there's a cost and a travel implication in doing it. Well, look, we looked, I think four years ago, before we even opened Brisbane, we flew down to Newcastle, myself, dad, Mika and Zach. We did a one night stint down there. We looked at the bars around. We liked the location. Um, I like that it's near the Barossa. It's, it's another city that's kind of similar to the Gold Coast. It's probably, it's a large regional city. It's not too far from Sydney being another big capital city. And, you know, it just felt like another version of here. And I like that about it. And Wollongong was another city that was pr pretty close to Sydney, similar coastal kind of vibe to it. And that's the other city we looked at. And Townsville was another one. So we're looking for another version of the Gold Coast, essentially, because we felt like it would map the best. And Newcastle had the best deal, and that's where we ended up. Um, you know, that's kind of all there is to it. We thought it was going to be a good place. The, the, it's very up and coming. There's a lot of development happening. And maybe we're five years early to the development or a decade early, but if we can sustain that period of time, if we can help like we have on the coast, if we can help the industry kind of boom a little bit more and add to the great cocktail bars that are already there, but even boost the scene and maybe get some more around the city, then I think we'll see some growth there too. How close are you to opening? Hopefully a few weeks. We're just waiting on the final kind of council when liquor licensing say so, which you know could be a few weeks, could be three years, who knows? So very, very, very close. One of the things I was really interested to learn is how popular you're becoming internationally. How did that come about? And, and, and which particular countries are really digging you? And why do you think that is? I think we've probably had the most success. Norway's been a strong one for us. Um, so currently we've got stock in the US, but we do, we're looking for a distributor still, a strong distributor. We've got stock and we've got a good distributor in New Zealand. We have stock in a distributor in Singapore. Norway, um, we're pretty close to Fiji and Malaysia. Um, Denmark, hopefully very soon. Um, and Japan is about to leave the warehouse here. I think Norway has been a really strong one for us that came out of just having quite a lot of international awards. You know, we, we're one of the top, you know, four gins in the world in the, in the last couple of years. And we've kept pretty consistent gold medals through a lot of those awards, world's best coffee liqueur, all those sorts of things. And they reached out to us from that and that was you know, that's been a really strong one. Um, an interesting market and a place that I've really enjoyed traveling to. So yeah, Norway's been a really strange one for us. Uh, New Zealand, obviously we're, we're a Kiwi family and it's about a Kiwi man and uh, that one kind of just made sense and that's been burgeoning. But you know, that none of them, it's not like that's the main part of our business. It's a part that we'd love to keep growing and I'd love to be a huge success, but it's, it's still very early days, you know, export like having wholesale here requires a lot of commitment. It, Requires a lot of resources. We have to travel to these destinations. We have to do the masterclasses. And I think in an ideal scenario, we would back up those markets with our key business model, which is these kind of venues. Mm -hmm. If we can have these experience-based programs that follow our and support our export markets, I think that makes the most sense for us. Yeah, <clears throat> that might go down really well in somewhere like Norway. So Norway is really interesting. Your products are top-end premium. 
Norway must obviously have an interest in in those you know high high quality drinks. What does a, a a bottle of gin cost in Norway? I think it's pretty similar to here, relative. I think anywhere from kind of eighty to ninety five dollars, a hundred bucks ish, depending on the alcohol percentage. It's pretty similar to here, to be honest. I think like the top tax spots are places like Norway and Sweden and Singapore and here. So um, yeah, it's pretty pretty similar to here, to be honest. But they've got a weird system where it's a it's monopolized by the government so it's all kind of pushed through them so there's different importers and then they're all sold and in a resale sense they're all sold through the same uh, like one monopoly that's owned by the government so it's very interesting the model there yeah definitely and i imagine if they're liking to buy from a, a retail perspective a bottle of your spirits an experience venue over there could be really good i've not spent any time in norway i don't know if you've had the chance to get over there but i imagine there's a lot of dark winter nights yeah, there is. We were lucky. We went over there in summer. Um, we spent about a week there. It's a very interesting culture, fantastic cocktail bars. We have a great relationship with our distributor there. There are some cold winter nights. and We actually have one of our key staff members that, that used to work in this venue actually moved over there with his girlfriend about a year ago and that just happened to coincide when we started exporting. So he's over there at the moment and yeah, you know, six months of the year is dark and dingy and cold over there and the other six months is beautiful and spectacular. So yeah, look, we're still moving through stock. I think having an experience there and in everywhere we export to is going to be a, a big part of how our business operates. And you mentioned then the amount of awards that your spirits have won. How, how do you go about winning those awards? Do you do you enter your products into a competition? Are they are they found? Yeah, they're they're all entered. They're all entered. There's no. Um, there's none that are found. That'd be a good way to do it. If there was just somebody going out and they just did this. Be a good job, wouldn't it? Yeah, tough job. Got to drink. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll start it. Um, yeah, like we have to enter them all. And a part of it at the start was we wanted to, we want to understand it. You know, it's a it's a version of benchmarking and understanding where your product is. The biggest issue with awards is it's really good when you win them, and when you don't win them, it it's doesn't mean anything. So if you if you get a slightly less result than last year, it doesn't mean anything. But if you get the if you get a ninety eight, but someone got a ninety nine, well they you know they're better so they get all the rewards and even though you're really close and you're still a fantastic gin you don't get as much as they do so when you're winning the best ones like world's best coffee liqueur or you know international gin producer of the year or any of those things they're huge for you but all the awards in between are really only to for ego i think they do have a good benefit on your team and some understanding of benchmarking like okay we do make great spirits here we do have those sorts of things but past that point you know it's just for fun really you enter them because you're hoping to win the best possible award you can win. And anything in between that is just a nice version of like, okay, it's a nice little reward. Because they're, they're so varied. Like we've we've entered the gin that put us in the top few in the world, the same exact gin from the same exact batch in the same exact bottling across like six awards and we got varied reactions to them. Some didn't come back to us with any any medals, any like even recognition. So I think, you know, if, if it's going to be a C, if you get a C as a, as a bronze medal, and it say it's, it takes you, you have to get 70 points. We didn't even get that for some of the awards. And then the same year with the same model and the same batch, we get one of the, you know, in the combination of the, one of the highest awards in the running for one of the highest awards in the industry. So it's all over the shop. Yeah. I think we should invent some kind of Michelin star rating for distilleries, which is secret. And you will, you do have to then get out globally and sample. Yeah. I'm just looking at your core range here. Uh, I'd be interested in in the little backstory and your opinions on them. So let's start with the greenhouse gin. So tell me that, about that one. That, that's our like what we call our gateway gin. So my great grandfather, his last property that I lived on, he had like a little greenhouse in the back and a shed there, and that's where all the males would kind of get called to when you turn you know fourteen or fifteen. You'd come in for your first drink. So they get everyone together. You'd sit in the greenhouse and you sit down and, and granite to kick the brick away and open the fridge and pull out a little Johnny Walker or a little bottle of gin and you'd have your first drink all together as men. And that was just a really special tradition in our family and something that we wanted to portray through that story. Although the gin that we represented it with is much softer and simpler and, you know, a little bit easier for people to consume on their first go. More subtle. So then we get to the two pencils gin. So this this really showcases kind of the, the, um, the grafter that he was. His father passed away before he was born, so he he was the man of the house from day one and he had to kind of support his mother and trying to earn money any way he could. And he lived in Timaru, which is in the South Island of New Zealand. And there was a racetrack down there. 
and he used to go to the racetrack. He'd see all these pencils left all over the shop from the punters from the previous weekend and he'd pick them up, he'd chop them all in half and then sell them at the front door the following weekend and make, you know, a few bob here and there. Um, and then, you know, that, that kind of takes us into 65 miles, which is our Navy strength. And, you know, you can't earn all that much money. It's not an empire that you're building off, you know, cutting half pencils. So he needed to find a job somewhere. So he hopped on his push and he biked 65 miles through the hills of the Mackenzie country, which is this really hilly part of New Zealand. Uh, to a sheep station and then shear sheep herd cattle and he'd work you know six days a week there come back to the family farm on the sunday and bike back out on the monday morning um, and kind of just grind it away until moving to christchurch uh, much later so let me get into your coffee liqueur yeah so a lot of people think he was you know he started the distillery or he was the main distiller um, but it was really only kind of legend in our family it was only small stories it was like oh maybe he Maybe he played around whiskey on the farm. Oh, he did love a whiskey and it kind of like transformed all over the shop. But he was mostly a barber for mm -hmm. more than 40 years. Uh, he was very community orientated. He had no, you know, for him, he believed that he didn't have any real skill and he wanted to go in the army, but he was a really short kind of stout guy. So couldn't go in the army. So what was the next best thing? He thought, okay, well, there's an empty shop there. There's all these infantry in the city. Maybe I can just learn how to cut hair. And he started offering free haircuts and learning how to be a barber and then to opening a small shop and, charging two bucks and you know basically for the rest of his life and uh, and kind of representing that drink what what sort of people would buy that you know that coffee liqueur is it's basically like an espresso martini in a yeah. bottle it's ready to rock and roll um that's so if you nice. like coffee if you like espressos like that is the go-to yeah i do i definitely don't like um me personally coffee cream liqueurs yeah, I like the sound of that. So then the last one on the core range, and then I'm going to ask you about some of your specials because they really are quite special. Penny vodka. Penny vodka, nice and simple, handmade. Pennies, not dollars, and we needed something to call the vodka, so it all worked out. <laughs> Fantastic. And you, you're always doing a special, and you know some I pick up on social media, and there's a massive craze around them. I think Pavlova gin, for example, would be would be one. What are some of the ones you've got on the go at the moment? Currently, we've got a yuzu cello, so. If you like your Italian lemon cellos, we've made a similar drink just with yuzu. So the Japanese citrus, it's kind of a mix between like a mandarin and a lime and, and whatnot. And it's just a beautiful citrus forward um, spirit that we've made. Really nice to sip on. We make a mojito here in the tasting room. That's like world-class, just absolutely delicious. Uh, another one we've got is Kate. So Kate is our office manager. She's been with us just over a year now and we're doing her staff release. So once anybody's worked with us full-time for a year, they get their own limited release. They get to design the label with our team. They get to come and talk about how they want to design the spirit. And she's a big lover of tequila. So we made a version of it. We called it, well, she called it, It's Not Tequila. Um, we made it using 100% blue agave. So correct to the rule. Um, and then we distilled it and fermented it through our still. And beautiful white kind of Blanco tequila came out. If you haven't sold out, I might try and buy a bottle of that before I go. Yeah, you have to trust them. So um, people that come to this tasting room, do you tend to find that we'll go neat on the spirit with a mixer or, or do you go more on cocktails? We'll do a lot more cocktails here. We have a, a famous thing here, which is our gin tasting boards. You get to taste our three core range gins. You get to mix them with some tonics and that's extremely popular. But I think it's still, I, st I think it'll always be something where gin is drunk, usually in a cocktail. I think it's only the psychos like myself and other enthusiasts that might sip at it straight. I think it, it's a spirit that shines really beautifully in cocktails and it is complex and it is interesting. And I think part of our job here in the taste rooms is to bring people along on that journey and get them to taste it straight. So there's always tastes going around. There's always that little bit of education that's being done around our different spirits. But I think definitely the volume of cocktails is much higher than just to straighten it. And which is your most popular cocktail? At the moment, I have to check the menu again. Probably at the moment, we've got two classics that always stay on our cocktail menu. We've got the Barbershop Espresso Martini since our first ever menu that's been on there. That is definitely going to be popular. Super popular. And um, our Seymour Street. So that's the last street that my great-grandfather ever lived on. It's a eucalyptus and lime cocktail. So just really simple but delicious. And then we change our menus over every six months. So Bree, who is our sensational you know, tasting room manager here on the Gold Coast, wrote up this menu, which is actually about to change in a couple of months, or about a month probably. I think my favorite on this menu would be probably the honey snap out of it, which is a, an orget milk punch. Pretty delicious honey with like a, a sesame seed snap as the garnish. 
whiskey forward cocktail, um, but it's got 65 miles gin in it. So yeah, not so whiskey forward after all. Uh, and I think the most popular would probably be drop in the pond, which is without greenhouse gin. So that'd be the two two up there for me. I wish it was a bit later in the day. Yeah, I actually that I was thinking that this morning. I thought maybe we should have. It wouldn't have been quiet around here, but maybe we should have made it at like you know three thirty. Yeah, could have definitely sampled. So what's next? Um, what does the rest of the year look like for you? Honestly, we'll see. I think Newcastle is going to be a big a big point of that. I think we'll probably have some trips over to hopefully to Denmark and to Singapore to support those markets. I think focusing on the venues and getting them into a place that they're really running beautifully is another task. You know, we're always trying to upskill staff. Um, we've moved through a couple, just moved, we, we've moved one person from Brisbane down to Newcastle and one person left us in Brizzy to move back to Sweden. So we've got, you know, a couple of openings there with new staff that need training. I think we'll, a lot of focus will be on just getting the tasting rooms to a place where they're exceptional and trying to get as much out of them as we can and continuing to train our staff, continuing to focus on our limited releases and, and yeah, looking for the next opportunity. Brilliant. I love the family vibe of this place. It's great. Thanks, mate. It's really nice to you. If people want to learn more about your journey, where can they reach out to you? Um, Riddos World on, on all things social. Uh, Luke Ridden on Facebook. And, yeah, follow all the Grandad Jacks pages and I'm sure you'll find us. That's two Ds in the middle. G-R-A-N-D-D-A-D. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Pleasure, mate.